Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. Okay, we're running just a little bit late. It's time to get started with our question. We're having too much fun at the tables. It's time to get started with the question part, but first a little bit about upcoming SACPA sessions. Next week, we have Tim Weiss from the Canadian Wind Energy Association and Rob Harlan from the Solar Energy Society of Alberta. Their topic is Southern Alberta as a Clean Energy Hub. What are the opportunities and challenges? Also in a couple of weeks... Uh, November 13th, there's an on-campus session on women's reproductive autonomy and legal access to abortion. And the speakers are Carol Williams, Brittany Adams, and Shannon Ingram. And uh, I think you all know that you can get more information on the talk from the SACPA website, hear the audio, etc., there's a suggestion box outside where you can contribute your ideas. Uh, today we've heard about some lessons we might learn from an earlier society, uh, although I think we need to get into the question period to draw that out some more. Our speaker is Dr. Kent Peacock. I'll ask him to come back to the podium to entertain your questions. Oh, and questioners, remember to state your name, keep your comments brief, and succinct, and just one question at a time, please. We're too old to remember any more up here. Well, the, the moderator is, of course, speaking for himself. But. <laughs> uh, b- before I start taking questions, could I, I, there's just a, a, one or, can I just talk for one or two minutes about other parts of the story that I just simply didn't have time to get into in the half hour that I had for my, my talk? And some things that are pretty relevant to understanding what's going on, on what has gone on in the island. When their statue culture collapsed, say 1,500, 1,600 our dates, there was a, peri- a, a violent period. They, they simply couldn't afford to keep as many people on the island as they had before. So we don't know the exact figures. We don't know exactly what happened. But let's just put it nicely. The population was downsized significantly. And... So by about the middle of the 19th century, there was something like 2,000 people left on the island. And then what happened was that in, in the 1860s, the island was invaded by Peruvian pirates who kidnapped most of the adult population and dragged them off into slavery to work in mines on the mainland. Most of them died, of course. Um, some years later, a few survivors came, were able to get back to the island bringing smallpox and other diseases with them. And so the result was that by about 1910 to 1920, the original native population was down to something like 15 or 20 persons. Okay, so, they, so that's the other part of their story that, that, I mean, I actually didn't know that at first myself and, until I started doing homework on this whole story, is, is the people were almost totally wiped out, not by, you know, their own doing, but by colonization by you know, piracy. There's no other word for it, right? And, um, 
So the, the, one of the over the really powerful sense I got after being to the island and learning more about their story is, if anything, just a sense of tragedy. I mean, this was a huge human tragedy for in a, in a number of ways, and um, so it's another reason I think to be respectful uh, toward them and and to never condescend or think that we're necessarily smarter or wiser because this well we didn't do that well maybe we have so anyway I can take questions now so. Please. Dr. Peacock, my name is Klaus Jericho, and I hate to be the first uh, questionnaire. Um, I, um, <laughs> I, I want to take issue with your uh, uh, final comment when you showed, expressed some empathy for their culture and for their behavior. Well, I have no empathy for them at all. They're totally self-destructing, stupid behavior. And of course, we, we uh, modern population, we are equally stupid. So, so I have no empathy for them at all. Uh, but my question is, um, do other islands in the Pacific, as an example, uh, uh, practice such ridiculous behavior? <laughs> okay, well, look, we could argue uh, quite a bit about the proper attitude to take. Um, I, I think what I was trying to get across is, is that we should have a certain amount of humility and respect. And if it was clear that we were any wiser, then, then it would be easier for us to uh, sort of enjoy a sense of moral superiority. Uh, but, you know, it's not clear that we're any wiser. Now, as to the question of what other islands have done, that's complicated, and I'm not an anthropologist, so I can only tell you a few little things that I happen to know. Again, the, the Polynesian peoples radiated out from Southeast Asia perhaps 3,000 years ago, one by one, they, they, they were amazing navigators. They, they occupied any, any habitable island all the way. Well, as a matter of fact, very, very recently it has been discovered uh, that there are remains, human remains in central Brazil with 100% pure Polynesian DNA in them. That, was, that just came out a few weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago. So they went, they went a long way. Um, now, there were some small islands that they... they um, in, uh, occupied that where the populations became totally extinct, and I don't know how many, but I know there were at least a couple where they you, you had a sort of resource-based crash like that, and everybody died. On the other hand, and this is a very important other hand, there's another one of the small islands. It's much farther to the west, near the Solomons. It's a very small island called Tikapia, again in, inhabited by or settled by Polynesians a long, long time ago. Tikapia is tiny. It's, uh, I think, about two or three square kilometers or maybe even smaller. Just really, I mean, I'm not even sure if the UofL campus is as big as Tikapia. And the Tikapians somehow maintained a stable population of between 12 and 1,400 people for 3,000 years. And they're still there and they're still doing fine. And they, they did it by a combination of intensive land management, sort of just caring for their little tiny island with exquisite care and, and just very, very rigorous population control uh, to the point where there are, again, oral tradition has it that some Tikapians actually committed mass suicide on rare occasions rather than allow the population. But what they all do is just get in canoes and just try to sail somewhere. But since Tikapia is not quite as isolated as Easter Island, but it's still hundreds of kilometers from the nearest habitable land, so you have, again, this similar phenomenon. So somehow the, the contrast between Tikapia and, and Rapa Nui is very, very interesting. 
Um, anybody who, who pretends to understand it is, uh, should have a little bit more humility because it's uh, why, did the, why did the Tikopians not do what the Rapa Nuians did? My guess, actually, if I'm allowed to guess, is that Easter Island, when people came there, was extremely lush and fertile. And, you know, not that small either. I've told you how big it is. And I think that they, for, for a period of time, they must have felt that, that they had lots of room and they could go out and they could allow their population to expand. They could, they could build, uh, have fun building statues and things like that. Whereas I think the Tikopians, be, because their island is so small, some of, they had the wisdom to realize that they were sort of on a lifeboat right from the beginning. And so they, so again, who knows why? Because it's three thousand years ago, and there's no written records. But they somehow initiated a sort of a very strict regimen right from the beginning and kept to it. And they're still, and they survived. So it's complicated. It's really complicated. It's really, it's it's you're tempted to draw sweeping conclusions, and and you have to be cautious. And and again, I think sh- show some respect and humility for the suffering of other people and the realization that, you know. Would I have done any better? So, oh, thank you. My name is Jim Byrne. Um, you kind of teased us with, I think, uh, we expect maybe some were expecting more of uh, uh, some parallels to today and maybe to our society with the uh, folks on Easter Island. Could you maybe expand on that? It's sure. Appreciated. Sure. Well, I only had half an hour, and of course, I, I so some of it had just had to be sort of a travelogue, but but. Uh, again, what you have, the, the, the parallel with modern society is um, Rapa Nui is, is started off with very rich resources, but it's finite. It's small. And once they lost their canoes, they, they had essentially no means whatsoever of getting food, resources of any sort from any other location. They couldn't even trade. The, the, the trade with other Polynesian islands actually ceased at that point as well. And, and um, <clears throat> so we're on a, on a planet. It's bigger than Easter Island, but it's still finite. Started off with tons and tons of rich resources, which we have gotten very good at taking advantage of. And, um, it, and it's allowed us to do all kinds of things that are not uh, necessary for immediate survival, such as, I mean, how many billion dollars was spent on the World Cup, the, foot, you know, the soccer thing last, last year? It's in the billions, all right? That, those were our moai, right? Those were our giant Silly statues, right? And and um, so so, and and we're on the same situation where we are now at the point where we have, you know, um, over seven billion people on the planet. Actually, I was looking in my notes. I came here and, and talked to Sakpa in, in 1999 about po- population, and in, in my notes for that period, I, I made the comment that my God, we're at 5.4 billion. That was in 1999. That's not that long ago, right? We're now at, what, 7.2 or something like that. So population, the strain in our resources, the fact that we know that a number of key resources are getting stressed, obviously, high-quality fossil fuels, high-quality petroleum. We've burned up most of the good stuff now. That's why we're scraping the bottom of the barrel in the tar sands and with fracking and things like that. Um, climate change, I'm sorry, but it's real. We can talk about that if you want. These these things are, are you know, the walls are sort of closing in a little bit, and... Um, are we going to be any wiser than the Rapa Nui uh, to, to realize you know, that our our ability to maintain this complex culture and come here to this nice place and have a pleasant lunch and everything else is dependent upon uh, you know rich flows of, of resources and and are we going to be smart enough to maintain that so 
Or are we going to go the same way only on the scale of a planetary-wide scale? And please don't tell me it couldn't happen. Part, part of the issue problem here is that I think it's a psychological thing is, is that, well, call it the unbelievability factor. I mean, if, if, if you're in the midst of a, of a flourish, flourishing society, um, it's very, very hard to believe that maybe a few years from now, this could, what is now Lethbridge could be abandoned ruins in the desert. You, you just, you can't, you just, it, your mind just refuses to even want to go there, right? And yet, what history tells us, what science tells us, is that this could happen. Not that it's necessarily inevitable, but yeah, it sure could happen. And um, because it sure has happened to a bunch of other cultures who thought they were doing just fine. So, anyway. Uh, thank you for your talk. I'm Mary Shillington. Uh, I'm too concerned with the environment. Uh, but our, our discussion at our table, we talked about how that could have happened, that they would have been building bigger and bigger statues uh, when their environment was ecological issues were there. Uh, and so I was speculating, I wonder if that was part of their religion and as part of the denial that things could uh, get worse, uh, were they building that as to to protect you know from the fear and maybe uh, uh, that kind of thing? So that's I'd like a comment from you as to what you know about that. As somebody else at the table said, how are we really any different? Uh, big uh, gas guzzling trucks that uh, people who don't really need a big truck are buzzing around all over, and and somebody's neighbor has a Hummer and doesn't really need a Hummer. So we're all good at denial, and that's the piece of what you're talking about, uh, things could happen here in Lethbridge, uh, or are happening, and many of us are in some form of denial. But what happened, uh, is there speculation about why the statues got bigger, and what the purpose of that was? So, that's my question. Okay, and, and I can only, I, I can't say too much, because I'm not an anthropologist. There is a large literature on the history of Rapa Nui. Um, I haven't read more than a, a bit of it. Uh, a lot of it's in, built into oral tradition. Oral tradition, I have a great deal of respect for it, but again, how reliable is it? Because most of them were wiped out, right? So, so, um, so to some extent, the anthropologists and historians and archaeologists who study these issues um, uh, have done a lot of work, and I'm not, I don't know everything they've done, but they are to some extent still guessing. You're trying to go on oral tradition and very, you know, trying to l- look at you know, remains in the ground and things like that. So, yeah, did re- yeah definitely religion was, it had, the statue culture had a religious component. I believe each clan had a sort of a god or demigod that was there protecting God or something like that. There was a religious spin to it as well, but I don't think it's the whole story. As I suggested, I think that part of it was to reinforce um, this sort of social continuity to maintain uh, the, the power of the elders and things like that. So, like I said, grandfather has gone has died, but there he is still, you know, glaring down on the town and keeping an eye on you, right? So, incidentally, um, something that doesn't get enough discussion, in my opinion, all of the figures are male, um, all of them. Absolutely none of them have any indication that they would be female. And um, there is some anthropological evidence, and again, I'm not sure how reliable it is, that their culture did tend to exclude women from positions of authority, and particularly in their religious practices, so maybe there's a story here about the role of patriarchy as well. Again, I just don't know enough to, to 
same, well, I've, I've already just told you everything I know about that, but that's, it's a question uh, that, that could be raised if somebody wanted to raise it. But religion, denial, why did they build bigger statues? Uh, I, I would, I'd be willing to guess that the people in the, the sort of statue-building clan um, would have been quite resistant to the idea that there was anything wrong. We're, hey, we're building bigger statues all the time. We're doing great. What's your problem? You know, you know all this talk about trees disappearing, you know, nah, I don't believe it, you know. Um, you know, sometimes I joke, I'm going to start up a new society that denies denial, right? Well, we'll, well, we, well I'm, there's no such thing as denial, right? It's all just a, it's a socialist conspiracy. But, uh, but, um, but, uh, but um, yeah, denial is a very common human problem. And, and, and I think, again, from what I've read of other various cultures which have reached the point of collapse, for the people who are kind of doing well, when they're still in the middle of it, um, these collapses, they, they don't happen in a nice way. Or, there, there are very few soft landings, right? Most of the time, it's just boom. Like, look, read the stories about ancient Rome, right? I'll bet you that right up to the 400 AD, the, the upper echelons of Roman society, the ones who benefited from all the tax cuts and the, you know, the, 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 the big landowners and people like that, I bet they thought they were doing fine. Now, 20 years later, the Visigoths came along and... T- you know, burned their houses down and, and desecrated the tomb of Augustus and things like that. But that right, I bet right up to the end, a lot of them thought it was just fine. We're, you know, we're doing better and better all the time. So um, it's denial and it's, um, I don't know. I'm still trying to understand this. It's one of, one of the focuses of my, my thinking is, is to understand how people can um, relate to their environments in a more effective way and be more aware and, and why do we tend to make these characteristic mistakes because again it's not just those people on that island it's a very common trait in cultures that are on the brink to, to as as things get tighter they just they build bigger monuments they 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 build up their armies they undertake further conquest they they just do more and more of what they think was essential to them, even though they could afford it less and less, until, boom, the, the, the roof comes in one day. And this is a very common phenomenon. There's, if there's one message you can take away from, from this, is we are all Rapa Nui. Right? That they are us, we are them. It's just, the details differ, but there's so much that's the same, and that's why we have to take it very seriously. I'm Bev Mundell-Atherstone. Thank you very much. I think you have a namesake in town, Kent Peacock. Yes, yes, and, and sometimes the bank actually sent him our credit card by mistake. It, it's, it's, it's hysterically funny, actually. Yeah. Thank you very much for your talk. Um, I actually came up here when there were three of us at the microphone, and um, the, the person ahead of me and your answer has led right into my question. So um, you've talked about the, the, cult, the culture and how... People were making bigger and bigger statues as they got into worse and worse shape. Mm. Um, it reminds me a lot of Alberta, uh, that we're taking more and more oil out of the ground. Uh, under Klein, he decided that um, Premier Klein would um, multiply the factor of how much oil was being taken out by 10 times. And uh, so that's where we are now with um, oil being uh, dug everywhere. So I'm very very curious um, what happened 
to make the bird culture, you know, I think there are some of us in this room who feel that we are we are the fledglings of the bird culture mm-hmm. in Alberta. We would really like to see a change. And um, so I'm kind of curious what what happened to allow that culture to go from, you know, these self-destructive sort of dinosaurs making bigger and bigger monuments, getting rid of their trees, and in <coughs> Alberta, more and more oil, getting rid of the... Uh, the um, Cutting down, doing clear cut cutting of the eastern slopes of the uh, the Rockies. So, what what was the change, and could we replicate that here in Alberta? Well, I, I there's again it's sketchy, but there's some, there there's apparently some evidence that when the statue culture on the island collapsed and they had a period of chaos. And a lot of people died, but they sort of somehow reorganized themselves. And it seems as if they had more attention to ecological sustainability. Well, they wouldn't have used that phrase, obviously. But they, 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 they worked on techniques of soil cultivation. There's actually something they also developed called lithic mulching, which is putting rocks at intervals on a field, and it protects the soil moisture and protects the surface of the, of the ground from wind and, and so forth. Um, those little manavis that I showed you, those little rock enclosures for plants. That when they were, when it, so I, I, the sense I got is that, and there's also evidence that they did try desperately to uh, cultivate the palm trees as they were disappearing. Right? They tried to save the palm trees, they, they, um, but it was just too late uh, for, for, for reasons that I think the experts are still not quite clear on. It's possible, for example, the island might have been hit by a drought cycle as well. And on top, so if you have a drought cycle on top of deforestation, then you're that could that could push it over the brink. Anyway, they, it's, it seems to me there's some evidence that they, in a sense, they they sort of after the the, the roof came in and they, they sort of tried to reorganize themselves on a more sustainable basis and pay a bit more attention to just. So they, I mean, they had to. I, I mean, one of the an, another metaphor that I really felt strongly when I was there and learning more of the stories is that. The, the phrase that kept flashing in my mind was end game, as in chess. All right, so you know if you're about to lose a chess game and you're into what they call the end game in chess, there's not many pieces left on the board, right? And um, you, you have fewer and fewer moves all the time. You know, you're just running out of moves to make, right? And that's the sense I got there is that they, they got down to a sort of an end game and then they started, to play the, they started to play the end game maybe a bit more intelligently because they had to. I mean, they're actually, they're actually not stupid, all right? They just figured it out. They, and perhaps if they hadn't been, um, you know, invaded by the, by the pirates in the 19th century, possibly they might st- still be there and, and doing fine, you know, because they had started to develop sustainable modalities consistent with what they had left. I mean, the, I, you, know, you can tell from my pictures the island is not actually a desert or anything. It's, you know, it, it's, you know, it's... A pretty harsh place, but it's, you know, it's possible to, for, even without modern technology, I'm sure that a couple of thousand people could live a fairly decent life there, with as long as they used sustainable methods and and uh, with great care and didn't build any more giant statues. So, hi, my name is Knut Peterson. Uh, haven't grown a few potatoes myself. Uh, do you think uh, potatoes would have saved the day? Uh, good question. I don't know if the soil would or the 
I'll bet you they could grow. They probably do grow potatoes there now, but I, I honestly just don't know. Uh, I think they probably grow things like taro root and other tubers that are peculiar to. Yeah. What was the staple food in back in the days before the collapse? Uh, and can you tell us a little bit about the the sustainability of agriculture there now? Well, but before they collapsed, uh, they got a lot of their protein from the sea because they could still build their outrigger canoes and, and go out. And there's some evidence that they, they fished porpoise, actually, um, as well as various kinds of fish. The fishing grounds around the island are very, very rich, even today, even as depleted as they are today. We, um, I mean, several times we had uh, locally caught tuna. Tuna caught that morning, slab of tuna, an inch thick. F- incredibly good. I mean, it's almost worth the air, airfare out there is to have the local fish, right? But it, it, it's fabulous. But, um, but, they, but they also there were quite a few birds that they subsisted on, so they, they either ate the birds or they caught, ate the eggs, and they wiped those out. They wiped out several species of birds. Um, and plant life, I'm not, I don't know as well. I'm not sure exactly what they grew, but they practiced slash and burn agriculture. Um, probably they brought a lot of things with them that would have been used at points farther west and taro root and things like that. I don't know exactly what they would have used, but um, the, the, um, but at, when they were at their height, I think even when the land was at, at its richest, I think that they still depended quite a bit on protein they got from the sea. But I, And there probably have, are people who have tried to quantify that, and I don't know what the numbers would be. But again, it, it, it became a sort of a... Um, uh, one thing led to the other, a, a, a cycle. Once they, once they couldn't build canoes anymore, then they couldn't go to sea anymore, uh, and then they had to depend more and more on the land. They, I think they did bring chickens with them, so they, they had lots of chickens. Not, I don't think know about pigs. I, I think it was just chickens they brought. There are pigs there now, but they're brought much later. Um, they depended on chickens. They also ate lots of rats because they brought long rats with them, and, and the rats, of course, helped to destroy the trees. So there's an evidence that the rats played a significant role in this particular palm tree going extinct because they would eat the seeds and the, and the saplings. And uh, these are just rats that were on, on board ship when they arrived, and they didn't, I don't think they in, even intended to bring them. But, but apparently, they, as things got a little strained, they had lots and lots of uh, curried rats. So that, you know, um, I, I'm not about to try it, but, but anyway... Interestingly, the people there now—I've been told this is a pretty typically South American. They're real meat eaters. They love their meat. Oh my God! They have these gigantic barbecues where they slaughter cows and everything. And, and uh, um, I, I gather from the descriptions I heard, it's a little bit bloody, but but uh, they love their meat. And, and a, a, veg, a, a diet in the hard vegan or vegetarian could not survive for a long time in Rapa Nui as it is today. There, you wouldn't have much to eat. And you just. You, I mean, I'm, I'm mostly vegetarian myself, but I just like, okay, I'm either going to starve or eat meat. And, and so I probably ate more meat on the week we were there than I had in the last two years, but I thought pretty much all there was. Well, I didn't complain about the, the, the fish, but, but uh, implication for agriculture. Well, again, now they're heavily subsidized by supplies brought in from offshore, right? The, those, that, those big planes that I showed you, they fly in at least three times a week. Um, well, actually, I think I think we heard a jet almost every day. Plus, there's shipping that comes in from time to time too. They they get a they get a lot of supplies from offshore. Uh, food is typically expensive, so uh, um, a meal like we had here today would cost. By the time you've done all the currency conversions, would cost two to three times as much on on the island as it does here. Um, but but. <laughs> 
Sorry. Just, we, we're running a bit oh, short, Ken, time, but we do have time for one more, sure. one more question. As you can tell, I could go on for a long time. Sure. I'm Harry Eldon. I was in Rapa Nui some time ago, but I read the book by Tor Heyerdahl, the right. Ahu Ahu. Yeah. And he came up with some different ideas, I think. Uh, by the way, I thought it was interesting that when the population was as low as it was, that uh, I think it was some Scot that had the whole island as a sheep farm. Fra Frenchman, and, and, actually. And the people were Until he got killed by the Rapa Nui. But. And the people were confined to Hangaroa. That's right. But yeah. uh, on, on the piracy bit, it was my understanding that uh, things were a little tight on the island and that some people went rather willingly, not realizing that they were going to be end, 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 end up in, in uh, forced labor, you know, in, mm -hmm. uh, in, in other countries on the mainland. That may well be, and I, I don't know that. The, the accounts I've seen describe the natives trying to fight back as they were being kidnapped. Uh, but th that's an interesting point that I simply don't know, and I'll, I'll, ta I'll take your point under advisement because I, I'd like to know more about that. Um, Okay, well, I think we're pretty much at the end now. I'd like to thank uh, Kent very much for that. And uh, I think we both uh, feel that perhaps energy is the ultimate resource. And as long as we're developing new sources of energy, maybe we have some degree of hope. I remain cautiously optimistic. Thank you. Thanks very much, everybody.